together our investment decks for our investors, I can really explain the story of the property and the management approach and strategy um, fluently to our investors because I've been on that ground level and been through the uh, operational trenches. Hey there, I am Dr. Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast, where we explore the why behind success. Every week, I meet with real estate investors, veterinary entrepreneurs, mindset coaches, authors, and fitness professionals to uncover their why and how it drives them on the winding road to success. What is your why? Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today, I'm here with Peter Richter. Peter provides strategic direction on matters affecting investor communication, capital markets, equity placement, and functions as a liaison to new investors. Um, Peter, you do have a, a very diverse background. I, I kind of want to let you tell the story. But before we dive into that, um, let me just say thank you. Thank you for taking the time out. Uh, I really do appreciate it. Definitely. Uh, Jason, thank you for having me on. I've been a big fan of your podcast for a while and some of the stories I've heard on it. So it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, well, let's let's start with your story. Let's let's talk about, you know, kind of your background um, and can I kind of move through it and what you're focused on today. And I'm, I'm sure I'll have lots of questions. Sure. Um, well, I guess we'll start from the beginning. Um, I, you know, I have a little bit different uh, genesis than a lot of people in my space and my level. I began my career as a leasing agent um, for apartments here in San Diego. Um, it was 2012, 13. Um, the economy was still feeling um, the aftershocks of the GFC. So jobs for recent graduates were few and far between, and in some cases unpaid. So when I found a job um, leasing apartments for a local operator here in San Diego, I jumped on it. Um, from there, I learned the basics of property management, and um, soon I took a position with a local, or not local, West Coast um, builder, merchant builder, um, and operator, Holland Partner Group. Um, they're a big presence on the West Coast, specifically here in San Diego and L.A. Um, there I learned that's my, that was my first introduction to multifamily, specifically, um, and like institutional-grade multifamily. Mm -hmm. I was hired as an assistant manager. Um, soon I took another job with uh, Pinnacle International as a manager of a high-rise down here in San Diego. And then fast forward about four or five years, I was managing for UDR, um, one of the larger residential REITs in the country, and I was managing managing the entire San Diego portfolio. Um, it was there where I first got um, where I got my first taste of kind of investor interfacing. Um, mm -hmm. It was the portfolio was part of a JV with MetLife, and it was my obligate my duties to kind of convey the um, operational status to our JV partners. So that's where I really got to my first introduction into like investor relations, per se. Um, so, and then after that, I started working for a local syndicator here in San Diego, uh, Down Investments. And there I was uh, the director of asset management and investor relations. And that's the first time I really transitioned from property management to asset management and further direct uh, investor relations. Um, fast forward a few years, and here I am as the Director of Capital Markets and Investor Relations at um, InterWest Capital. Um, and InterWest Capital, I think, is different from all my prior experiences. We are nationwide. Um, we are 
you know, we have our target markets we'd like to invest in, but, you know, we are opportunistic in nature and in some cases agnostic to the market as long as it has the sh has strong underlying fundamentals that we look for, um, which has been great. I now work on a variety of different projects, markets, asset classes, um, and a variety of different, with a variety of different investors. So we work with everyone from private retail investors to family offices to some of the largest institutions in the country. Um, each of those different, uh, let's call them investor classes, requires a little bit different approach and um, often require different uh, returns. So I've gotten and have different investment preferences. So I've gotten a lot of exposure in that sense working here at Interwest. Yeah, that that's really fascinating background. I I don't I don't know that I've had anybody on here. I I know people that have got become you know sort of vertically integrated. I know people that have worked in property management before, but I guess you know coming f starting as that leasing agent, it definitely yeah. I'm sure gives you a very unique perspective. I think I look at so and I want to dive in on the topic of, you know, sort of property manager versus asset manager, because I think that's an important distinction for people. But I, I would say one of my, I guess, observations has been that there's kind of three distinct categories in, in my mind between uh, like property management and in a lot of ways, asset management as well, but, but with the leasing being, being one of them. Right. So I think, mm -hmm. I think there's leasing, I think there's construction management again, and then, and then the, to me, the financial management kind of sure. combines that that's, that's how I've been able to sort of make it work in my mind. But I, I right. wanted to kind of get your take on just that, that sort of start as a leasing manager and how that's helped you, um, kind of, you know, going forward in your career. Definitely. Um, you know, starting as a leasing manager and before that, a leasing agent is you really get a, um, intimate understanding of uh, tenant preferences, tenant, um, and different, what, what makes a unit lease? Um, whether it's south facing, um, you know, now, now when I'm looking at deals, you know, we're doing a 200 unit deal right now in Chattanooga, I'm diving into the unit mix. And as the unit mix skewed heavily towards three bedrooms, I know it's gonna be more attractive to families per se, which right. means the school district in the area district in the area will probably carry a little bit more weight. And for that reason, we might be able to charge a premium over our competitors. It's those kind of um, insights. And that's, that's, that was a simple one, but you know, we do a lot of value add here. And it's through leasing, I learned what our tenants really looking for um, as far as renovations and a diff what different you know, economic price, uh, diff what different price points, workforce housing, you know, it might someone, a tenant, prospect who's looking at workforce housing may not care if it's quartz or granite, but right. on a class A, which I've, I've managed both, I've managed, you know, some of the nicest high rises in downtown San Diego, people really care. People care, you know, what brand their refrigerators are, not just if it's stainless steel, but is it Whirlpool or is it Sub-Zero? Um, so under, understanding those kind of tenant preferences makes a big difference when executing a renovation strategy on a large scale. And um, further, it, as part of my job, I put together our investment decks for our investors. I can really explain the story of the property and the management approach and strategy um, fluently to our investors because I've been 
on that ground level and been through the uh, operational trenches. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to to be to have come, you know, as you said, from the trenches and just be and that it's funny because you say that that's that's how I feel a lot about my construction background is I, I came from mm -hmm. doing construction like as a teenager. And so the construction side of things, I can easily communicate with both the contractors and vendors and then, you know, up through the through the investors to kind of explain what's going on. Mm -hmm. And, and I think having that on the, on the leasing side is certainly is going to be beneficial in explaining the story when you're, you know, talking to investors about a specific deal, what, what you like about it. Definitely. I think it also gives you a competitive advantage, Jason. I mean, when you're looking at your competitors who haven't been on a construction site working, they might, you know, having that, um, again, that, that like deep insight into the process. You, I think it gives you a competitive advantage of people who just, over people who are just, you know, desktop underwriting and um, right. putting something together in an Excel model. Yeah, yeah, and it, it just gives you options. It gives you, I mean, I'd, I'd like to think that people don't don't take advantage of other people, but but in reality, it, it does keep you from being in a scenario where a contractor is going to tell you one thing that that might not be, uh, the, you know. <laughs> absolutely needed or it might not be you know the right pricing around it. it just it gives you some some background knowledge there to to have those conversations as you sort of moved through that journey and, and you went from you know leasing agent leasing manager and then kind of switched to asset manager can you maybe just describe for people listening what that means to you like your your definitions and kind of the difference mm -hmm. between the two so that's probably for me the, was the biggest pivot is moving from property manager to asset manager. And I, I was portfolio manager to asset manager. But the difference is an asset manager is able to take a step back and look at a operation, a deal from 30,000 feet, whereas a property manager is responsible for, you know, the interviewing, um, the time cards, managing personnel, um, you know, approving vendors, um, the asset manager, a good asset manager, lets the property manager do that and is able to step back and kind of, you know, strategically move the pieces as they see fit to optimize the performance of the investment. And that's another thing is I believe that a property manager's job is to keep the property in line with their budget. The asset manager's job is to keep the budget in line with the pro forma. Um, and I think that's the big distinction is the asset manager has a fiduciary obligation to the investors who receive the pro forma of how the property is supposed to operate. And it's their job to steer the budget um, to be in line with that. Whereas the property manager is just more focused on keeping the operations in line with the budget that's provided to them or that they work on. Of course, they work on them. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, I've, I've actually never heard it put that way, but I, I love that sort of definition because like, like I said, I, I think maybe this is the thing that um, it's just fascinating, you know, the way people's different backgrounds kind of give you a perspective on, mm -hmm. on things. But that's why I really feel like I, I broke all that down into, you know, sort of asset management to those three categories. And, and you mentioned the budget and, it, and it, it's a, a really good way to look at it from a from an understanding of what your property manager you know, what, how they see the budget versus how you see the budget and figuring out how to, you know, you've got to make those mesh somehow to, to exactly. have the project work. So, um, I like how you kind of pointed that out there. You're, 
you you journeyed into you know kind of asset management and investor relations um, kind of along the way. It seems like mostly in tandem, those two things went kind of hand in hand. It sounds like. Yeah, it happened really fluidly. I I was the asset manager um, at Davlin Investments, and it soon became evident that I was the best candidate to you know explain the um, the give updates on the status of a property to our investors. Um, and then on new acquisitions, I got very involved in the acquisition process. And then it, okay, well, who's going to put together the investment deck? Well, it made the most sense for me to do that. And so soon I just kind of absorbed that role and um, at my prior job. And I really found, I took to it very quickly. Um, you know, again, I made the differentiation between my experience and a lot of other of my players. I mean, a lot of asset managers, for example, and not all, and not here at Interwest, but I know other asset managers that are, you know, they, they're great with Excel, but they've never, you know, again, they've never, they, they might have difficulty communicating um, efficiently yes. with investors. I, I think probably from my years of leasing and managing a team of 40 when I was at UDR, I, I became proficient at communication and my, my experience interfacing with our, um, our JV partner. So I was pretty good at communicating that story of the properties of the investments to our investors. So it only made sense. That it just, if you were going to have both roles, at least in my prior company, if you were going to have both roles, it would have been redundant. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it really, it, if you're a decent communicator, it, it does mm -hmm. make sense for that asset manager to be uh, at least intimately involved in investor yeah. relations and communications, mm -hmm. because you, you are the one that you're, you're essentially telling you're, you're building the story and then, and then you've got to convey it to, to the investors. So it, it does make a lot of sense. You may have, you know, people on the team that are helping you what, building those decks or wh whatever the case yeah. may be. But at the end of the day, the, the person who's involved most on that sort of day-to-day -day level is who's going to probably be best equipped to yeah. relay that to someone else. So it does, it does make a lot of sense that they would be um, kind of in combination. Um, you, you mentioned, at Interwest, you're uh, agnostic. You mean markets, asset classes, maybe so, all so of it? So when we said, I, I, I want to kind of walk that back a bit. I said market agnostic. I, I think that I, okay. I like, you know, we have our target markets. Um, and for example, um, we like what we call, you know, the smile states. So California yeah. through the Southwest, through the South and kind of up through the Carolinas. Those are mm -hmm. target markets. But it wasn't four months ago I was working on a deal, a high-rise in downtown Chicago. Um, yeah. It was a screaming basis. It was a distressed seller. So I would say not that we're market agnostic. We're opportunistic mm -hmm. if a good deal comes along in a market that we're at least familiar with. Um, further, there are markets such as, that we like, such as Phoenix. We own in Phoenix. Um, Austin and Nashville are markets that we like. However, the supply story in all those markets is uh, it's, there's a just tremendous amount of incoming supply um, over the next, let's call it eight quarters. So for us to chase a deal in one of those markets, we're, we're, I guess Phoenix is a little bit different, but for Austin and Nashville, we're not necessarily chasing deals in those markets. However, if we found a great deal um, on a new property at a 
meaningful discount to replacement cost um, in a great location, and we were able to underwrite conservatively as we always do, then that was something we'd pursue. So when I say agnostic, I guess that meant we're opportunistic if something comes along in maybe not a target market of ours. Yeah, and that makes total sense. I guess with, with that, are, is it's all multifamily, correct? It's you're not, uh, or, or are you looking at other asset classes as well? So again, I think that goes back to our opportunistic nature. We do own, yeah. we own three hotels. We sold one recently. We own a golf course in Phoenix. Um, it's a good place to own a golf course. <laughs> it is, and it's really, we, we bought it um, and we are actually, our plans are to develop the driving range into multifamily. Um, and uh, so again, opportunistic play, surprisingly, we've owned it for three or four years, or four or five years. The golf operations have been doing great. Definitely got a huge COVID boost, so it's cash flowing pretty nicely. Um, although it's really just covered land play, um, it's, it's doing pretty good. So again, we do own some hotels, but our core competency and focus is multifamily. And you mentioned value add. Are you are you also? I know you just said you're, you're thinking about development at, on the on the driving range. Are you doing development at all? Otherwise, or, or yeah, kind I of would say our, if if our firm is somewhat oppor opportunistic, our development approach is very opportunistic. Um, we have three sites here in San Diego. We just broke ground on one um, in the in October. To be a 147 unit um, multifamily mid-rise. Um, we've got two other sites that are varying stages of pre-development. So we do some development, um, but it's very opportunistic, and uh, it's you know it's we're not actively chasing new development sites. Most of our most of our efforts, especially from our acquisitions team, is focused on value or multifamily. But now we're doing you know we do some value add some. Core, we call it restore to core. Um, basically, like, you know, a, a core plus deal. You can do some light renovations and touch ups and get it in line right. with core product. Um, we're also seeing opportunities right now with, uh, you know, core assets, core plus assets that are that where the seller is having some significant distress, mm -hmm. and we're able to get come in at a great basis, far below replacement cost in strong markets. So yeah, value adds our main objective, but we're kind of keeping our eyes on the board. Yeah, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the, I heard someone else say this, but you know, at the end of the day, you're, you're in the business to provide returns to investors. Ultimately, that's, that's exactly. it. And so uh, finding good deals that work in, in our, um, you know, financially beneficial to you and your investment partners is, is the name of the game. And I think that's, right. you, especially with, you know, if, if, especially when market cycles shift and they shift locally, right? So you may have a downturn in one market and, and another is, is, you know, kind of on the upswing or something. You just, if you're, if you're saying, I only invest in this market in this type of asset, you, you're going to probably miss some opportunities. So I think it makes a lot of sense to, kind of approach it the way that you do. Definitely. It is challenging, I will say, when I'm working with investors, especially institutional investors, and mm -hmm. they want to know our strategy. And, um, and they say, okay, right. well, what's your, what's your investment thesis or strategy? It's a little bit more difficult communicating that opportunistic strategy to them 
Um, however, we've got a you know twenty-year track record with average IRRs in the. I mean, for multifamily, it's like mid thirties. Um, so I think that we're able to point to our track record. But mm -hmm. and you know we've done. We also will do some like debt purchases as well. So again. We have a broad strategy, and it becomes challenging when some investors want to see, you know, a very acute, focused strategy. But you know, I would my counter argument to that is, you know, if somebody has an acute focus, I mean, strategies come in and out of feasibility with with market cycles, as you mentioned, and you know, the typical value add play that people were doing, you know, in 2019 using floating rate debt. That doesn't play anymore. Um, that doesn't work. So if you're still hyper focused on that strategy, I mean, you're, yeah. I don't want to say out of business, but it's tough. Yeah, I mean, it, you do. You have to. You have to pivot some. It doesn't mean you get mm -hmm. away from your, you know, core competencies and fundamentals. It just means right. you might apply them somewhere else, whether that's a different market or a different asset class. Like it's not tremendously different to buy a value add multifamily asset as it would be to develop one from ground up and in, in the sense that at the end of the day it's still it's still multifamily it's just a little bit of a different approach so exactly i i understand what you're saying i think it makes a lot of sense um i did want to ask you because a lot of people you know as as a fellow california resident a lot of people very negative on investing in california just like oh don't do it don't ever you know and you said you know you you invest in the smile states including california in that and so i think mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people would say that all the other, all the other parts of that smile make a lot of sense. But uh, I, I just, I think that it's probably good in in a way for people that do invest in California. I think a lot of people's reluctance to invest here might open up opportunities for people that do. But but I I certainly know plenty of investors that invest here and are successful. So I yeah. wondered if maybe you would kind of touch on that and and maybe maybe the strategy is a little bit different here than it might be in another state but uh mm -hmm. i would i would love it if you kind of give me your thoughts on that sure i mean i would th i would say okay i'm a i am a strong believer in california um i always have been i understand the challenges that come with operating here in california whether it's new legislation that can get passed like up in la you guys had that ula tax, yeah. the mansion tax that yeah. went into effect was, I mean, a year or two ago. I mean, that, that, was, that was a huge blow um, to commercial real estate values. Um, AB 1482 uh, that went into effect, I think that was during COVID or maybe right before COVID, um, that you know, was basically a statewide rent control measure. Mm -hmm. That was, again, tough for value add players. Um, I will say that when you look at the supply and demand dynamics in California, they remain strong, um, and they remain much stronger than those sweetheart Sunbelt markets. If you look at even in LA, if you look at the supply versus demand dynamics in LA versus Austin, Houston, Nashville, um, Phoenix, I mean, there's, it's not even comparable. Um, so as long as, so you got that. So I guess the, the challenge is just, you have a lot of, High labor costs, for example, um, you know, turning units. That's a big thing in LA is turning units for renovations. You know, it's really difficult to get people out and, you know, right. get into those units to renovate. You just have to know how to operate. And mm -hmm. just with that ULA tax, 
you have to underwrite. I think it is 5.5% um, transfer right. tax, or if it's over 10 million or something. Um, you just have to underwrite that. And uh, we're looking at in the Bay Area actually right now. Um, I wouldn't say in downtown San Francisco, but we, we like San Jose and some of the surrounding markets. Rents haven't grown a ton, but the lack of supply is, I mean, it's you still have a strong demand and you've got very little shovels in the ground. Um, that's why we love San Diego. So, yeah, I mean, San Diego's are, we, it, San Diego's a tough market to get into just because of, you know, very limited in like transaction volume and um, it's expensive. But there's really, I mean, vacancy in San Diego. And if you get outside some of those like um, hyper, like downtown San Diego has a ton of supply. You get outside of that, I mean, vacancy is almost negligible um, versus markets like Phoenix, where we're seeing 30. So I've gotten estimates all over the place, but I've determined that somewhere between 30,000 and 40,000 units are going to be delivered into Phoenix in the next eight quarters. That, I mean, that's astonishing. And if you're going to buy into a market like that, you better be underwriting significant concessions, flat to negative rent growth. Um, and so just the barrier to entry in California, it's tough to build. Um, people want to live here. You live here, I live here. Um, sure, there's some politics you have to wrap your head around. There's some, some, legis some, you know, some legislative hurdles you got to get around. But if you can make it work, I mean, it's, it pays off. And if you have a little, maybe you have to have a little bit further horizon on your right. deal. Maybe it's not a three to four or five year hold. Maybe it's an eight year hold. But again, it's, that thesis has been proven out time and time again. Yeah. Um, so that, that's my take on California. I'm a big believer. I understand people's hesitancy right now. I, I spoke to an investor, a family office, a big family office. Um, they had, I think they have like a billion dollars in uh, dry powder right now. And they said uh, their investment thesis boils down to uh, the redder, the better when it comes to markets they want to invest in. So I, I get it. I, I totally understand that. But um, I think you can't, can't write off California. I, I completely agree. I think it, it, it's just a different way to operate. You've just got to, yeah. you got to, like you're going to do things differently in San Diego than you would do in, you know, the Carolinas or, or you know, Georgia or whatever. Yeah. It's just going to be, it's going to be a different way of operating. I think one of the interesting things, you know, people always point to in California is that sort of, tenant friendly rather than landlord friendly. And, um, and, you know, we invest in, in the other states that are landlord friendly and stuff. But what happens when, when the landlord friendliness changes in those states, like that's kind of a thing mm -hmm. that I think people leave out of that story. Or, yeah. if, for example, like, what there's, there's a, we, I know this, because we have assets in Atlanta, but there's a big issue. They had the eviction moratorium during um, uh, with COVID and then that lifted over two years ago and they still have an eviction backup because they don't yeah. have the infrastructure manpower to, to manage it. And so right. it's great to be landlord friendly, but if you're expecting those things to happen quickly and easily, and then they don't, you're, th that's going to place you in a bit of struggle. And so it's, it's just like, I feel like at least in California, you already know, you already know <laughs> yeah. that it's that it's going to be hard to get people out. You know that it's good, you know that, and people have strategies with uh, 
cash for keys and things like that. But you just, just like you said, with the, with the mansion tax or whatever they call it, it, you have to, if you're planning to pay people to leave so that you can renovate those units in California, that's part of your underwriting. What, you know, yep. what are you going to give them? So it's just a, just. A, di a different strategy. So I, I think um, it comes down to skill set. It's, it's really operator yeah. skill set um, in California. And I think Atlanta is a great example. That's a market we really like. Um, probably oversupplied in some areas, but it's okay. We still think it's got strong fundamentals. But we track bad debt market wide in Atlanta, and mm -hmm. it has really crept up. Um, it's a it's a issue at the forefront, and it's because I mean, in my opinion, I'm not the opinion of a company, but my opinion is that operators don't have that same California experience, whether it's the cash for keys or it's the, you know, yeah. different techniques that operators in California have developed over, you know, many, many years right. dealing with these kind of headwinds. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think, no, I, I completely agree. And it's, it's something that, that took us some time, thankfully, like, I feel like we figured it out now. And, but now, like when I look at, when I look at new deals around Atlanta to underwrite, the first thing I ask for is, you know, what's your outstanding bad debt? What, yeah. how, how many tenants, how much do they owe? How long have they been, uh, you know, in the eviction process? Because it's, it's definitely, it makes a big difference. And I think, I think there's a lot of, you know, distress like that causes opportunity. So there's a lot of money to be made there. If you're, if you're buying a place and you know, those tactics, like you mentioned, you know how to operate and use those tactics tactics to to you know sort of re restore order, if you will, I guess. But just get things back, you know, on track. I think that there is a lot of um, money to be made in in operating those assets. Um, and and also, I'd like to also point out that you know every state comes with its own unique set of challenges. Uh, right. Texas is a non disclosure state. Estimating your taxes, your property taxes in Texas is an extremely opaque process um, versus California. You know exactly what you're going to um, yeah. In Tennessee, we're do we have an acquisition right now in Chattanooga um, that we're closing in on. And you've got franchise and excise tax. So you have to come up with a creative structure for your entity to try to become exempt from that, um, to be exempt from franchise and excise tax, which are significant. So Florida, you've got insurance. You know, I mean, everyone's yeah. got insurance. Some of our, we have a deal in Miami and Jacksonville. You know, Miami insurance per units creeping up to sixteen, seventeen hundred a door. Um, so I would say that every state kind of has its own unique challenges. Um, so you just gotta pick your pick your battles, I guess. Right, and it and it goes back to what you said. You just you have to know how to operate in mm -hmm. that location, right? And it's you know, I, I think that the, the challenge is always when things change rapidly. And it's yeah. the same thing. The whole market saw that with interest rates shooting up. But like you mentioned, insurance, you know, insurance in, in Florida and, and I think Texas is is, is experiencing mm -hmm. similar things. But, you know, if if insurance rates are creeping up year by year by year during your hold time, OK, that's one thing. But like I'm, they pretty much tripled is my understanding. I don't, I don't have anything in Florida and yeah. Texas right now. And I'm happy that I don't because that like the people that I know are like, our insurance, you know, what it, it's up to 1600 a unit. Well, it was 600 a unit, you know, something like right. that. So it's kind of, that happened very rapidly and that's a hard thing to, to, to build into your underwriting. So Definitely. people purchasing in the future will know that and they'll, you know, plan for yeah. it. So it's just kind of 
And there's techniques like, so our assets in Florida, we rely on either our investment partners or our uh, uh, management partners. We use third-party management companies. So a lot of times our selection of our third-party management company will be whose umbrella policy will give us the best insurance rate. So I think that's an example. And we have a deal with a large institutional investor, the deal Miami, we're on their umbrella policy and they have, you know, uh, you know, a couple billion dollars in multifamily across the country. So because of that, you know, that's, a te- again, that's technique you develop. Right. Um, right. And so you just have to have the tool chest for whatever market you're entering. Yeah. No, I've, I, I, great points. I mean, I think it's just, <laughs> that's the whole, that's the whole job, right? As an asset manager is, yeah. is finding solutions, just, just finding exactly. solutions to these, these problems. And then, you know, sort of learning from them and implementing them uh, in, in future mm-hmm. deals as well. So I, th- I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, Peter, let me let me switch gears. It's really fascinating, but I don't want to keep you here all day. Um, let me switch gears so I can ask you the questions that I ask every guest. Um, first one is related to the name of the show being Know Your Why. So what what is your why? What's, uh, you know, driving you? You've obviously had a lot of success. I, th- I think you've got actually a great story sort of coming from that that leasing agent and, and moving all the way up to, to the level that you're at now. But, but what, what drives you at this point? Okay. So this is going to sound a little cheesy, but uh, it's really enhancing returns to all of my stakeholders. And you have to think of that a little bit abstractly. My stakeholders are my investors. They're my tenants there. It's my wife. It's my dog. It's my family. Anyone who's got a stake in me, I try to, you know, I, I feel, uh, you know, an obligation to try to benefit them somehow, um, which in, then in turn benefits me. Um, so I think of, you know, global or holistically my stakeholders is, whether it's my family, my dog, my friends, my, um, my tenants, my investors, my, my, my boss, my company, um, my coworkers, they're all stakeholders in some way or another. They've all invested at least some energy or, compassion or love for me. So I, uh, try to enhance their returns. I know it sounds cheesy though. No, I, I love it. I think, it, I think it's a, it, you know, that question often gets answered with, with family, which certainly like my family is, is, you know, at the, at the center of my why, but I've, sure. I've realized that it also, I, I like sort of the way that you put it there, you know, the stake, like essentially anybody who's invested in you in some way, Right. And that's, right. you know, like you want, I look at it as like, yes, we want returns for our investors. We want, we want them to, to make money. We, we also want our family, our, our mentors, our whatever mm-hmm. to be proud of us. Like that sort of thing. All of that is, is kind of goes along with it. And it's, I, I like the way that you kind of um, summarized it all as stakeholders. It's a pretty good, it's a pretty good perspective. Our podcast on host. Right. 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 Any, anyone <laughs> it really true. It's just like, who can, who can we make, you know, sort of, yeah. who, who can we add value to? So I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, second question for you. What is something about uh, yourself that uh, maybe isn't common knowledge, a special skill, a hobby, um, anything that you'd like to share, let people know you a little bit better? Um, well, I, you know, <laughs> Odd hobby I've recently gotten very into is making brewing uh, mead. So I've gotten very into it. I'm going to be entering my first competition mead soon. Oh, wow. But I, I have a lot of hobbies. But anyway, that's the one that's like right on my mind because I'm bottling up a strawberry mead right now. 
uh, um, Very in cool. this second stage of fermentation. So I think that's kind of a unique hobby that a lot of people, some people, a lot of people don't even know what meat is. It's fermented honey. Um, okay. So it's like honey wine, if you will. Gotcha. But okay. Yeah, that's a hobby of mine. I've, I was like, I don't really know what it is, but I mean, I've, I've heard the word, but I, I would, I, I didn't know it was fermented honey. I've, I feel like that's, you hear about mead in the, um, movies about the Renaissance, like, like sure. <laughs> from, from, uh, you know, years or centuries ago. So not something, I guess, that I would imagine it. when you say you're in a competition, I'm imagining you at it like a Renaissance fair in the, in yeah, the competition I mean, there. You know, it's, it, I think there is a, a kind of perception of it being like a Viking, like actually this one recipe I made is actually called Vikings blood. It's a cranberry, um, yeah. but, um, you know, it is, it's an ancient alcohol and, uh, it's fairly easy to make. I mean, really the true ingredients are just water, honey, and yeast. Um, but then you can get really creative and take it in all different directions. So I'm doing a strawberry basil mead right now. Um, but it's really easy to make, uh, you can buy kits online to get started like basic kits and get more advanced. So if you're looking for a new hobby, Jason, I would, uh, it's <laughs> fascinating. That's fascinating. That's, fascinating. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's cool. I, this that is like one of my favorite questions to ask people. Cause some of the stuff is like just really interesting, like things I didn't necessarily know about or what. So I, I, I love hearing what people have going on, you know, kind of outside their, their business world. Yeah. Um, when people hear this and they want to reach out to you, what's the best way? Um, our best way to get in touch with me is by emailing me at peter at interwestcapital.com. Um, I'll get back to you. My, one of our rules, my capital markets team to get back within 24 hours. Um, so I will get back to you. Again, peter at interwestcapital.com. Any questions, um, if you want to get on our new investor uh, distribution list, if you just have general questions or you want to discuss mead, Feel free to reach out anytime. Yeah, yeah. perfect. We'll, we'll put that uh, in the show notes as well. Um, okay. Last question for you, Peter. What piece of advice would you give to someone who's starting out? They, they you know, hear this, they're inspired, they want to get into real estate. What, what would you tell them, uh, you know, as some first steps? Um, I would say it depend, depends on where they're at. I mean, I think that the route I went is a long, somewhat arduous route to where, where I'm at right now. Um, I think that if you don't have the time to do that, that's fine. I would say become an expert in something. Um, and whether it's pick a market, pick, a, I don't know, let's say you want Vegas. Understand every single uh, fundamental in the Vegas market, what employers are hiring, how much they're paying, just become a complete expert in that market and then jump in and um, just, Dig a, dig a hole, what do they say, an uh, inch wide and a mile deep, yeah. and just focus on that and focus on one asset class um, and come up with an with a investment thesis and try to make it work. Um, and if it look, maybe during your research and your research, you realize that, oh, wait, my office to, convert, office to multifamily conversions is actually a lot more difficult than I thought. Okay, we'll pivot. Um, it is a lot more difficult than most people think. Right. Um, so, so yeah. pivot, and I think there's nothing wrong with pivoting once you have uh, the full picture. Yeah, no, I, th I think it's great. I think, and it, I, I actually meant to. I'm glad you sort of reminded me of this. I, I meant to sort of mention and highlight this towards the beginning. I like. I love the sort of apprenticeship model. The like, mm. go get a job in this somewhere, 
and yeah. just like and figure it out like you'll learn it you'll learn it doing it that's for sure it, it, i think it's a really great step to take if if especially if you're young and just starting out and in like your your true um <laughs> your true value is is your time right and in, in your at mm-hmm. a point in your life where you can do things like that and go go get jobs at, at you know exactly like you said in your story you worked your way up into you know at a, a much bigger role yeah and and also let me walk that back i i guess i i was thinking through the lens of somebody me like in their mid-30s that wants to jump right in if you are young and have a little bit of a run, runway ahead of you i would say pick a great company and work for them yeah. and pick a company that's going to give you reps um mm-hmm. that's you know that you're going to if you if you want to be in acquisitions or uh, development, make sure it's a company where you're going to get plenty of reps. And even if you're not transacting that much, you're, you're getting that exposure where it's an environment that is open to ask questions. And that, that I'm sorry, without a doubt, that's the best way to get in is working for a great company um, and learning what you love about them and maybe also what you don't love. And um, yeah, learn from that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's great. Um, well, Peter, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate everything that you've shared. Um, I think that that uh, the listeners are going to get a ton of value out of this. So thank you very much. Great. No, this is fun. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, absolutely. Folks listening, uh, I know you're going to love this episode. Please like, rate, and review the show uh, so we can get more great guests like Peter. And thank you all for listening. Hey there. I am Dr. Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast, where we explore the why behind success. Every week, I meet with real estate investors, veterinary entrepreneurs, mindset coaches, authors, and fitness professionals to uncover their why and how it drives them on the winding road to success. What is your why?